and welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. On today's episode, I'm going to break with tradition a little bit and examine the cultural impact of one individual because that one individual was so integral to the pop culture of the 70s and early 80s so much a part of the structure of those decades that to remove her would alter the shape of that era to the point where it would become unrecognizable. Such was the impact of Olivia Newton-John. Before I do that, though, a quick thank you for your support of this podcast, whether that be with your reviews, telling friends and families, um, or offering financial support on Patreon. When I say this is a one-woman one mic show, it is more than that. Uh, it's more than the mic. Yours truly does all of the writing, the editing, the production. It does cost some money to do those things. So if you would like to help pay some bills, head over to FTR70.com and click on the Patreon link at the top of the page. It's easy to do and it helps keep the shows ad free. What struck me more than anything other than sadness when John Easterling let the world know about the death of his wife on August 8th, 2022, was just how far her reach was. The outpouring of love from all corners of the entertainment world was seemingly endless. When Viola Davis tweeted, Oh man, you were my childhood. Your talent, poise, beauty, rest in glorious peace, God bless your family, and thank you for creating eternal memories. Yeah, I got that. Viola Davis turned 57 years old three days after Olivia died. And if you're in that age range, I'm just a little bit younger than Viola. It's hard to remember walking this planet without Olivia being on it too. Exactly what piece of your life she holds depends on when she came into your consciousness. For many people, that was Olivia as Sandy Olson in Greece. For others, it was Xanadu. Or maybe it was something with physical, either the song or the video. But before that, maybe it was for you as it was for me. It was AM radio. I mean, the AM radio of my mom's blue Ford something or other. It was the early 70s before there were laws about kids and seatbelts and things like that. So when I went with my mom to run errands, I had to slide onto the bench seat in the front And if that seat was too hot from baking in the sun, I would kind of hover over the seat for a few minutes before before I lowered myself on it. If you know, you know. My view on these rides was the car radio, which was AM only, that had these big silver knobs, one for tuning and one for volume. There were like, I don't know, five, six maybe, push-button presets, and I was not allowed to touch any of this, but the power that my mom had, a twist of the dial here and a push of the button there, and boom, there she was, the soft rock queen, Olivia Newton-John. Now, all grown up, I know that this was the era in which Olivia was the soft rock queen who pissed off the country music establishment. Olivia made it clear that she never set out to make country music growing up in, uh, Australia, she country western was not a thing, and she listened to folk music. 
Her influences ran the lines of Joan Baez, not Patsy Cline. Look no further than her cover of Bob Dylan's If Not For You in 1971, which was her first hit single, and I think better than Bob Dylan's version. If Not For You, the album, is full of cover songs. Me and Bobby McGee, written by Chris Christopherson and made into a posthumous hit by Janis Joplin. If You Could Read My Mind, which was a hit by Gordon Lightfoot. If, which was a hit for Bread. Help Me Make It Through the Night, that's an interesting one. This is another Chris Christopherson song. Sammy Smith released her own cover in November 1970, and it was a crossover hit, number one country, number eight, Billboard Hot 100. It also charted at number three on the easy listening chart. I say this is interesting because this is the sweet spot for Olivia in the 70s, before Greece. It's the combination of country and pop, a bit melancholy, twangy in the right places, but with pop arrangement. This is what makes her a star. Greg Shaw, a 70s rock journalist, and he was an icon in that field, wrote in his magazine, Phonograph Record, in 1974 that this was the, quote, newly emerging field of female middle-of-the-road pop. Okay, I mean, that makes sense, too. Listen here, this is a small clip of Sammy Smith with Help Me Make It Through the Night. Take the ribbon from my hair Shake it loose and let it fall Laying soft against your skin Like the shadows on the wall Man, that is pretty. Okay, now... Uh, let's listen to Olivia. This is her cover of Help Me Make It Through the Night. Take the ribbon from my hair Shake it loose and let it fall Lay it soft against your skin Her career is headed. For one thing, she makes that song her own. It's a year later. That's 1971. And Sammy Smith's version of Help Me Make It Through the Night is classic. But Olivia is making it her own, and you can hear where her musical career is headed. Now, of course, she's just one of the infiltrators into the temple of the country music establishment. I have spoken and written at length about this. 
about uh, country radio's own attempts to court the pop and rock fans into their fold. Go check out episode two of this very podcast for more on this. But here I will just say that this had been going on since the early 60s when someone in radio decided that country and western should ditch the banjos and the fiddles. That Olivia was not even American and had no country roots was more than many in the industry could even stand. Let Me Be There was released as a single in 1973. It's a crossover hit, number six on the Billboard Hot 100 and number seven on the country chart. I want you to think for a minute about what was going on in the United States in 1973. A lot of historians have debated about when the 60s officially ended. They did not end when the calendar turned from 1969 to 70. My vote is 1973 when American troops are largely withdrawn from Vietnam. So at this point, uh, we want something like Let Me Be There, a beat, catchy, and it hits in that country pop sweet spot. This is a little bit of Let Me Be There. along to let me be there. Now, that was uh, peak countrypolitan. You've got, is it country? Is it pop? We don't know. It's good. It's a combination of the two. Remember what I said about uh, her reach? Greg Shaw, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, he was an indie rock guy. He liked bands like Devo and the Germs. He also liked Let Me Be There, which he said is a great song. And he liked Olivia. Personally, he said, I'm ready to admit her to the ranks of female vocalists. She's got everything going for her. She's Australian. She has a great voice. She prefers big productions to acoustic guitars. She's never recorded Amazing Grace, and she's extremely good looking. Now, I should add that you would be very hard-pressed to find an article about Olivia Newton-John published anywhere, anytime in the 70s that does not mention her looks. Now, the newspapers had to be a little more subtle about it. They would just usually say she was pretty. But uh, Cream Magazine, Rolling Stone's rival rock magazine, they did not have to be subtle, and they were not. This is from Robert Hull in 1975, and I quote, What female singer would you like most to sit in your lap? Connie Francis, too old. Cher, too bananas. Bette Midler, stinks under the armpits and between her legs. Maria Muldauer, yawn. Helen Reddy, Virgin, Anne Murray, Ugly, Susie Quattro, 
she'd stomp you in your marbles. Answer, Olivia. Mm-hmm. Well, mixed in with all the misogyny, Hull actually reviews Have You Never Been Mellow, Olivia's fifth album. He writes, But to be fair, Olivia can sing, too. True, her voice ain't got the polish of Karen Carpenter, Leslie Gore, or Brenda Lee, but it's got a special aurora that cannot be matched. Now, I say, no matter how pretty Olivia was, it was still unacceptable in some circles to be kind of in this middle-of-the-road pop area, and it was unacceptable to admit that you liked it. I also think that more people liked her music than were willing to admit it, kind of like the Carpenters, and I think that her looks, because she was, let's face it, she was beautiful, uh, her looks made it more acceptable to, you know, give you an excuse to stop and look at her on TV or to give her album cover a second glance, that sort of thing. Also, I mean, to be fair to her critics, If You Love Me, Let Me Know does sound a lot like Let Me Be There, which is just fine if you like Let Me Be There, but not fine if you don't. And it becomes even less fine when every time you turn on the radio, there she is. As enthralled as I was sitting in the front seat of my mom's Ford, there were plenty of folks who were rolling their eyes at this kind of mushy middle of the country pop spectrum. 1974 was quite a year for country music. Dolly Parton left the Porter Wagner show in February, which was no doubt her launching pad, but she'd outgrown him and she had bigger plans for her career. The final show at the old, often hot and sweaty Ryman Auditorium in Nashville was on March 15, 1974. The Opry moved to the Burbs and hosted President Richard Nixon the next night, who took a turn on the piano playing God Bless America, of course. Five months later, Nixon climbed into Air Force One, resigning to avoid impeachment due to his role in the Watergate scandal. The Country Music Association Awards of 1974 also had some drama. The Country Music Association formed in 1958 with the explicit purpose of promoting country music. Not the fiddles and banjos country, but the countrypolitan, the smoother version with the strings instead of the twang. Again, see episode two of this podcast for more on that. There was more money to be made in pop, and as I have said many times, country radio was right where it wanted to be, and when Olivia Newton-John found herself nominated for the CMA Female Vocalist of the Year in 1974, along with Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, Tanya Tucker, and Anne Murray, this was what the CMA wanted. It was where it wanted to be when Olivia Newton-John was nominated for a Grammy for Female Country Vocalist of the Year in 1974, along with Marie Osmond, Barbara Fairchild, Tammy Wynette, and Dottie West. And you know what? Olivia won them both. If You Love Me, Let Me Know was also nominated for the CMA Single of the Year, which it did not win, but the damage was done as far as the purists were concerned. Gene Shepard said on the Ken Burns country music documentary series for PBS that, quote, the music was getting away from us. By us, she meant the so-called real country artists, and this was just not it. Olivia had five consecutive top 10 pop hits that also crossed over to country. The second of the five was I Honestly Love You. This song was written for a man. 
It was written by Jeff Barry and Peter Allen with a man in mind. In fact, Allen really wanted to keep it for himself, but Jeff Barry said, hey, you know what? Olivia is really pretty popular. Why don't you let her record it? It won her a Grammy in 1975 for female pop vocal, not country. This time, she pissed off Joni Mitchell fans who audibly groaned about Mitchell not winning for Court and Spark. And it got a Grammy for her and John Farrar for Record of the Year. The next day, the Tennessean, Nashville's daily newspaper, published this little blurb in its recap of the Grammys. Record of the Year was I Honestly Love You by Miss Newton-John. It was this record which caused confusion at the Country Music Awards show last year when it was classified as a country song over some opposition. I guess we have some confusion Hmm, that sounds like a, a euphemism to me. Look, if you were a hardcore country purist and genres matter to you, I could see why this song being nominated for Country Music Awards would upset you. It's not classic country, but much of what was being played on country radio in 1974 and 1975 wasn't classic country. Let's listen. This is a bit of I Honestly Love You. I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable I'm not trying to make you anything at all But this feeling doesn't come along every day And you shouldn't blow the chance When you've got the chance to say In the days after Olivia's death this year, Rob Sheffield wrote for Rolling Stone, If we both had been born in another place and time, this moment might be ending with a kiss. The way her voice trembles on that line is always a punch in the aorta. Amen. Olivia Newton-John's first number one pop song was I Honestly Love You, and uh, it went to number six on the Billboard Hot Country and a Grammy winner. Oh, by the way, it also made it to number 39 in digital song sales in 2022, of course, uh, in the days after her death. Look, it's as country as any other hit from 1975. Glenn Campbell's Rhinestone Cowboy, which was also number one on the pop charts. It's as country as, uh, hey, won't you play another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song by B.J. Thomas. It's as country as I'm Not Lisa by Jesse Coulter. It's as country as When Will I Be Loved by Linda Ronstadt. That is to say, it's sort of country. What is hard to dispute is the mass appeal that someone like Olivia has when she has, when she is on both pop and country radio. 
She was not as popular in Britain. And when she was asked about that in the summer of 1975, she said, in America, there are so many radio stations, say 20 or 30 to each city. Okay, that's a little bit of an overstatement there. But anyway, that's what she said. People are able to hear a record 10 or 12 times a day, even if they're just fiddling about with the dial. Here, you're lucky to get maybe two or three plays a day, and ballads like I Honestly Love You obviously need to be played time and again and are that much harder to get off the ground. The month that she gave that interview, Please, Mr. Please, was released. It went to number three on the Billboard Hot 100, number five on the country charts. And then that was it for her for country hits for a while. She would not have another country hit until 1978, and that one was from a certain movie soundtrack. Jack Zink, writing for the Fort Lauderdale News in 1975, captured Olivia's appeal beyond the countless men who wrote about how pretty she was. It was that she, and I shall quote, represents the culmination of the most persistent trend in contemporary music over the past decade. It, in her, is embodied the perfect blend of rock, pop, country, and folk sought by so many but achieved by no one else. And I think that sums it up. Uh, it's this Again, it's this broad-reaching appeal, and it will be proven in the 80s, and even beyond that when she's not making hit records, but kind of doing more what she wants to do, that the woman could sing anything. It was something that she did not feel like Britain's music industry was ever going to allow her to do, though. She felt like she was, if you were, she was an actress, you would say she was typecast. She couldn't break free from the teenage Olivia on Cliff Richards' TV shows in the 1960s and early 70s. Caroline Kuhn, who interviewed her for Melody Maker in 1974, wrote, When she was bundled onto the stage at Brighton to represent Britain in the Eurovision Song Contest, dressed like an Escher matron in her nightdress, anyone who knew what she was really capable of must have done their nut. For those who do not know, Eurovision is an international song competition, and Libby was Britain's 1974 contestant. Uh, she was forced to sing a song called Boom Bang while wearing a very matronly light blue dress that honestly did look like uh, somebody's nightgown. A lot of people made a really big deal about the dress, but she said no dress could have saved that horrific song. Also, this is me talking now. She did not stand a chance against ABBA and Waterloo. At any rate, Olivia said, quote, Do I feel that in England I have to be the nice girl next door? Yes. Slightly I feel that's what people expect of me up till now. Anyway, that's the image I've had. In America, my image is completely opposite to what it is here. They think of me quite differently as an artist. I'm able to be more myself. I not only have different songs, but I look different too. As they didn't know what to expect of me when I did my last concert tour, I felt I could go on and just be myself. The first show I did in America, I wore jeans, and that was exciting enough, and I thought, my God, they still clap and I'm wearing jeans. You suddenly realize in that environment that it's the music they come for, the glamour bit just doesn't come into it. The audience are just there to hear you. According to the casting director, John Thurm, 
There was never any other actress in mind to play Sandy, even if Olivia herself was not sure when it came to casting for the movie adaptation of Grease. She wanted to do a screen test, even though none was required. She wanted to see, though, if she had any chemistry at all with John Travolta, especially since she was older than he was. Of course, now it is hard to imagine anyone else in either role. I wonder if Cliff Riddell, and Cliff, if you're out there, I apologize. I don't know how to pronounce your last name. So, you know what? I'm just going to call you Cliff. I wonder if Cliff ever looks back on his review of Greece. He wrote for the Cincinnati Inquirer for 38 years. He was inducted into the University of Cincinnati's Journalism Hall of Fame. But he was just a 20-year-old pop critic with two years of experience at at the Inquirer under his belt when he wrote the following for an article titled, If It Smells, It Must Be Grease. Grease is Olivia Newton-John's first American film. I hope it is her last. The world does not need another Doris Day, one mousy-voiced, dishwater-blonde actress who can't act, can't sing, can't dance, and can't pass for 36, much less 16 is enough. Oh my gosh. He let Travolta have it too. John Travolta's career takes a giant step backward with Grease. The promise he showed in Saturday Night Fever has been broken. But don't stay up all night and bray at the moon in morning. The promise wasn't that big to begin with. Oh, Cliff. Travolta's Grease performance puts him in a category with Barbara Streisand. Both are one-character actors. No matter what role Travolta has, whenever he opens his mouth or jerks his head, out pops Vinny Barbarino. And for those who don't know, Vinny Barbarino was on Welcome Back, Cotter, the character uh, on Welcome Back, Cotter. Hmm. Cliff, if you're out there, and I, you're still alive, I looked, drop me a line and let me know if time has softened some of the sharp edges of your distaste for Greece. In, gl- in his defense... You know, maybe a 20-year-old dude isn't the target audience for a musical that taps into our collective desire for the mythical 1950s. That longing for the past has been what has sent multiple generations back to that movie time and again, no matter how many times you have seen it. Folks, look, we all do realize that Stockard Channing is old enough to be a seasoned teacher at Rydell High. I'll confess when I first saw Grease as a small child, I did not, but now I get it. We could dissect Grease for its problematic storyline about changing your persona just to get a guy, but I'm not going to go down that road because I think that would be taking Grease just a bit too seriously. See Cliff's review above. And it neglects the fact that Danny was also trying to change himself for Sandy too. Remember, he actually went and got that Letterman sweater. Of course. It's the music that makes Grease fun. And even though there was more to Livy than Grease, there was also no Grease as we know it without her. She is our Sandy. Just innocent enough to make us believe that she was definitely not going to go all the way with Danny at the drive-in. But she was still hopelessly devoted to him. She was just hot enough to be believable when she crushes out that cigarette before she and Travolta launch into You're the One That I Want. 
Olivia's only solo contribution to the Grease soundtrack is a return to what brought her fame in the U.S. in the first place. Hopelessly Devoted to You was written by John Farrar, her longtime producer, who also wrote You're the One That I Want. Uh, He wrote Have You Never Been Mellow, among other things. And, oh, by the way, he will write A Little More Love and Magic after this. She entrusted her career to him, and he knew how to write material that suited her. This song was not even supposed to be in the movie, but her contract stated that she was going to get a solo song. Farrar said no song he wrote for her took as long as this one. And he put a lot of thought into the lyrics. You know, he got all the, the thesauruses out and the rhyming dictionaries and all that to get everything just right. There is a lot of camp silliness in Greece, but there is nothing silly about Olivia's performance of Hopelessly Devoted to You. It's as beautiful a ballad as Farrar ever wrote for her. Her vocals are gorgeous, and it makes the end more believable. Sandy is hopelessly devoted to Danny, and she will do whatever it takes to get him. Billboard Hot 100 in the United States of America, number one, several places around the world, uh, number 20 in the country charts, and an Oscar nomination. Uh, That song lost to Last Dance from Thank God It's Friday, Last Dance by Donna Summer. I, I can't argue with that. A few years later, Olivia said the success of Greece allowed her to do other things with her music. It was the opportunity for her to squeeze into Sandy's tight black pants and dance at the Shake Shack with John Travolta that gave her the opportunity to show the world what she could do to see her in a new light. So it was not hard to think when looking at her in her leather pants and jacket on the cover of Totally Hot that she was Sandy shedding her good girl image. Olivia was no longer a country artist. It says a lot about the loyalty of her country fans that her totally hot record got up to number four on the Billboard country chart because its two biggest hits, Deeper Than the Night and A Little More Love, are not country. They are pure pop. Look, there's no judgment here. If you liked the movie Xanadu, which was a commercial flop, Olivia said that her mistake was agreeing to it because she liked the idea, but there was no script, and so she just agreed to it based on an 18-page treatment. 
and then it was written and rewritten while it was being shot. But hey, uh, you like what you like, and if uh, a futuristic movie in which Olivia plays a roller skating Greek muse who kisses a guy and encourages said guy to open a nightclub, if that's your jam, then this is right up your alley. Even if critics hated the movie, which they did, they loved the soundtrack. What's not to love about Electric Light Orchestra backing up Olivia on the Xanadu title track? I can think of nothing not to love about that. I think that her transition, though, to Pop Goddess was made official with magic. The guitar in this song was something unique, and it kind of evokes this uh, otherworldly feeling. We definitely know we are not getting a country song from Olivia with this. big deal. Uh, The third most popular single of 1980, it came in behind Call Me by Blondie and another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd. That's kind of some rarefied air, I would say, for 1980. You know, even though the single Magic, I think, gives us a glimpse into the future for pop music in the 1980s, it, it shows us where pop music is headed. Another song on the Xanadu soundtrack is definitely a kind of a nod to Olivia's past. In 1964, Billboard magazine named Cliff Richard the number one recording artist in the world. Elvis Presley was number two. In fact, Cliff Richard was called the British Elvis, which gives you some idea of how popular he was in Britain. It was Cliff Richard who helped bring Olivia's music to the world by giving her a showcase on his BBC TV shows, the Cliff Richard Show, which ran from 1969 to 1970, and It's Cliff Richard, which was on from 70 to 75. Let's listen in a bit of Don't Move Away from 1971. But I wouldn't let myself admit it. You know it's true, and my love is here, so come and get it too. But here today, I'm confessing that I'm nothing without you. Don't 
Don't Move Away, 1971. Boy, a lot is going to happen in Olivia's career before they team up again for Suddenly for the Xanadu soundtrack. I honestly do not understand why Cliff Richard's career didn't take off more in the U.S. Uh, He had the hits We Don't Talk Anymore and Dreamin' in 79 and 80. And Devil Woman, released in 76, I love that song. But he was hardly a household name. I don't think he really understood it either. Um, They had the same manager from Australia, Peter Gormley, but it just didn't happen for Cliff the way it did for Olivia. So then they team up for the love theme to Xanadu, uh, reminiscent of the past, their past, with a little bit of 80s synthesizer. Listen to how their vocals seamlessly blend together on Suddenly. Suddenly, it was released in October 1980. It snuck into the top 20. It didn't do quite as well as her duet that had been released earlier in the year with Andy Gibb. I can't help it. That made it to number 12. But, you know, Andy Gibb still had a bit more star power in the U.S. than Cliff Richard did. But, man, that's just a pretty song and kind of a bit of a throwback because it's not the direction that Olivia's career is headed. As the 70s become the 80s, it's the era of the synthesizer. It's the era of video, and she's right there, front and center, even before MTV with this so-called video album for physical. These went beyond the videos that she made for Totally Hot, which were just her singing. These were her making videos with kind of mini plots of the type that we see become standard a few years later. And it was not only released for home purchase, but a chunk of it was on a primetime television special on ABC. Now, if you were not alive or you were not old enough to absorb pop culture in 1981, it is really hard to overstate just how much physical was in our collective pop culture DNA. Because it's hard to imagine a world without Olivia singing Make a Move on Me or Physical, which is the point of this episode. It's also hard to remember or recognize how daring it was for her to sing lyrics like this. There's nothing left to talk about unless it's horizontally, or I can tell you got plans for me, and your eyes are saying that you made them carefully. But tonight, I have to say, there just may be another way. I can't wait. 
Won't you spare me all the charms and take me in your arms? I can't wait. I'm the one you want. That's all I want to be. So come on, baby, make a move on me. She wasn't even sure she could get away with that. She recorded the song Physical after Rod Stewart and Tina Turner passed because it had the makings of a commercial success. I want you to picture her playing it over and over again in her car stereo, trying to decide if she should record it because that's what she did. And she ended up thinking, well, this is either going to be a smash or a flop. It was her manager who finally convinced her to do it. She said, I grew to like it, and so I did it. I don't always pick a song that way, but let's face it, everybody likes to have a hit. Even if you didn't like the song Physical, even if you did want to escape it, and let's face it, with the song being number one for 10 weeks, could you blame someone? Could you blame me for wanting to escape Physical? It was number one from November 21st, 1981 to January 23rd, 1982. That's right, all the way through Thanksgiving, through the holidays, almost up to Valentine's Day, we've got physical and constant radio rotation. And given that we were in the midst of an aerobics craze, this song and the video fit right in, even though she made it, well, Brian Grant made it about aerobics. Of course, we know that's not what the song is about. Olivia got heavy MTV rotation because this came out at the beginning of MTV, which launched in 1981. There's a little something for everyone in that video. We've got close-ups of dudes and speedos, and we've got the uh, washboard abs, and there's a shot of Olivia taking a shower and more abs and biceps. It's all very peak 80s. Sidebar, for nine weeks... Foreigners waiting for a girl like you hung out at the number two spot blocked by physical. What was it that made it one of the biggest hits of the 80s? Well, I mean, it's catchy for one thing. It taps into a cultural fad, fitness. It has a scorching guitar solo, uh, courtesy of Steve Lukather from, to- uh, from Toto. But most of all, Olivia sells it. I mean, she's playful, but she's sexual enough to sell it. The result is a career-defining and an era-defining hit.
musical, number one for 11 billion days and the peak of Olivia's pop career. The video today seems obviously very dated, but it was very daring for the time. And I think that Madonna owes Olivia Newton-John a bit of credit for opening the door to uh, the acceptance of a woman daring to show some sexuality and being in control of some sexuality. Now, Olivia will continue to work throughout the 80s. Soul Kiss continues to tap into the theme of the steamier Olivia. And then her movie with John Travolta in 1983, Two of a Kind, resulted in another hit from that soundtrack, Twist of Fate. But at a certain point, motherhood and age, she turned 40 in 1988, kind of nudged her aside, and we made room for new pop queens. But for well over 10 years, Olivia Newton-John didn't just have a successful career. She had multiple phases of a successful career that made her part and parcel of two vastly different eras. She was the first crush for many adolescent boys, and I suspect some girls too. She got what she meant to people. It did not escape her that rock magazines like Rolling Stone and Cream wrote negative reviews and maybe even made fun of her a little bit. But her view was that, you know, they had rock journalists with preconceived notions about who she was who were prepared not to like her music. And there was nothing wrong with liking a little bit of softer music too. She didn't really have a problem with any of that except for she took exception to any sort of review that said she couldn't sing because, of course, that's bullshit. Olivia Newton-John could sing. Here we are, uh, 40, 50 years later, and through it all, it's that voice. It's so expressive and beautiful, and it's truly the soundtrack of many of our lives. Can you imagine your life without it? No, me either. And we were lucky to be there to hear it. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. All of my sources are on FTR70.com. If you like what you hear, hey, leave a nice review or tell somebody or throw a little cash into the tip jar on Patreon. That's all for now. Bye, everyone. <laughs>